now that I have grown up to become a comedian, he's left me with one final important life lesson in the tragic taking of his own life. If you choose the noble profession that this man did, if you choose to blow life and joy into people, you must always remember to stop before you run out of breath. Well, tragedy does come in, in many different forms. I think there's a hierarchy of tragedy, uh, and I like the little ones, you know, the, the little sort of mischances, mistimings, misdemeanors, miscommunications that happen as we go along in life. Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host and I'm up here with the rest of the Stand Up Tragedy team and we are putting on an hour of tragedy every day at the Banshee Labyrinth at 7.30. We've got a different lineup of acts every single day so if you come once, come again and you'll have a completely different show. I'm recording this introduction live at Stand Up Tragedy HQ and around me there are various members of the team doing things, preparing themselves for tragedies of various kinds. One of the things that's happening here is we're writing in all of the guests onto the flyers for my Getting Better Acquainted conversations that I'm recording live this week, the 18th to the 22nd of August, 3.15, every day at the Royal Oak. So come along and hear some conversations happening. The guests I've got mostly are people who've appeared at Stand Up Tragedy. So if you've come and seen us during the festival and you'd like to hear some more from some of the people who do it, come along and have a listen. Other things that are happening are less kind of interesting than that. There's some pasta being cooked by a very hungry sound engineer. We've got one of our performers in the corner preparing her tale of tragic travel. And we've got our occasional guest host Charlie Lucy Harrison coming into the room with blurry eyes uh, at, a, at, a, at a late late hour in the day. Uh, and that's what's happening here at Stand Up Tragedy HQ. Tragedies are being prepared as we speak. Now, today you're going to be listening to some really great tragedy. It's a clip show, so we're going to bring you some of the best performances that we've had live on our stage this fringe. We're going to be starting off with Jay Foreman, who is a real favourite of Stand Up Tragedy. He's going to be doing some musical comedy, but his saddest musical comedy because it is a tragedy show after all. Following that, we have a return to the podcast from Tama Katan, who gives a raw and powerful elegy to Robin Williams that was recorded the day after Robin Williams passed away and was written during the night and is full of passion and love and sadness. And then we've got a first-timer to, to stand-up tragedy, first time we've ever seen him perform was at the Fringe, Matt Miller. He gives a really great and complicated, emotionally dark and twisted, but also very honest, true story. So that's, gonna, that's a great one to be listening out for. Then we've got a tragic comedy set from Charlie Harrison, she of blurry-eyed fame, and she's going to be doing some comedy but with a tragic edge going to a few dark and controversial places. And then we're finishing off with Mel Jones, who we're delighted to have had back for her second Edinburgh performance with us. She is a poet who has a filthy mouth, but we love that filthy mouth so much and we love we love it coming onto our stage and sharing some mundane tragedies of everyday life with our audience. So sit back, make yourself comfortable. You're going to have some catharsis now. You're going to have some tragedy. We'll be putting out more tragedy 
on the podcast throughout the fringe so have a listen keep your ears peeled we're on itunes stitcher soundcloud we're on twitter and facebook and all of those things so share your tragedy reach out to us let's communicate about the tragedy and now as i said here is your show so our next tragic performer is doing a children's uh, show uh, in, in, in Edinburgh at the moment called Disgusting Songs for Revolting Children and Other Funny Stories at uh, 4.45 at the Pleasance Courtyard. Uh, he won't be doing children's material today, though, I don't think. So put your hands together for Jay Foreman! Thank you. Hello. Hello. Hello, how are we all? Are we well? That's not the correct response. This is a stand-up tragedy, so we're all supposed to be in a really foul mood. How are we all? Are we well? No, sorry. And by the way, if it turns out that I'm talking to you in a really patronising manner, it's because I've been spending an hour every day talking to an audience full of kids, so I'm getting a bit used to it. And I've got to say, it's fucking relieving being able to swear. Um, Now, the first song, ladies and gentlemen, um, concerns childhood and uh, parenthood, actually. So give me a cheer if we've got any parents in the room. Any parents, give me a cheer. Now, the concerning thing there is that you guys had to think about it. <laughs> Wait, do those things count as our kids? Yeah, hey! So, um, how old are your kids? 16 and 18. Right, well, that's the banter out of the way. This is um, a song about that moment when you realise that you've become a parent for the first time. Is this the going to balance? Unless, Dave, if you want to stay there like that and uh, hold the microphone in position, <laughs> it'll, it'll demean us both. But let's, let's give this a go. This is a song about the moment when you realise you've become a parent for the first time and how horrifying a moment that is. Hang on. Just a minute. Hang on just a minute. Ah, that's mildly worse. I've discovered it's impossible to tune a guitar without also tuning your face. Here we go, here we go, here's the song. What? (laughs) Really? Let's talk afterwards. (laughs) Little Japanese baby, what have you done to me? My life will be so complicated now you have come to be My wife went not so long ago On a business trip to Tokyo And came home with a nervous looking smile By the time she said we'd have a kid I completely forgot about what she did And thought I was your daddy for a while Little Japanese baby You look nothing like me My friends are going to point and laugh Now you have come to be You probably should be really glad That you never met your real dad Cause I bet he was an evil nasty man 
now don't be too demanding please cause i'm afraid i don't speak japanese but i'll bring you up the very best i can little japanese baby little japanese baby little japanese baby Thank you. I paid my cleaner to kill my cat. And my next song, ladies and gentlemen, um, this is another sad song I've got. They're all sad songs today, and uh, this is a song that explains why I currently suffer from this particular phobia. This is a completely true story, by the way. I must have been about five years old when I went to see the sooty show. My parents took me nearly every Christmas. We'd been going three years in a row. But this time was different Cause something happened That made me never go again In the interval they ran a competition And somebody read out my name I was going on stage to meet my favourite bear Sooty Sweep and Sue and Matthew Corbett were there remember clearly standing with my parents on stage and waiting in a queue not quite believing how cool it was to meet the real sooty sweep and sue i reached the front and he was waving at me so yellow cute and lovable Poor Matthew Corbett, he tried to stop me, but Sooty looked so huggable. I ran out and grabbed and squeezed my favourite bear. How was I to know that I'd feel fingers in there? Sooty's not a real bear, he's just a human hand, a human hand, a human hand, a human hand. A Thank you. If you die whilst we're having sex perchance, I'll finish myself off before I call the ambulance. <laughs> and uh, my last song, ladies and gentlemen. Um, actually, uh, before I do the last song, is it right if I do a shameless plug? Uh, I'm doing a show every day in the Pleasance Courtyard, uh, but if it's too childlike for you, uh, if you'd like to take home some of these songs on your iPod, uh, I'm selling uh, my albums. Uh, you get uh, Each album has 20 songs, and each album costs £5. So um, if you think 20 songs for £5 is good value for a CD at the Fringe, make some noise! Yeah!
Hey, thank you. Please donate to this show first, by all means. But then if you want to buy a CD, that, that, that'd be amazing. Anyway, um, this last song, ladies and gentlemen, is another sad one I have um, about destroying the magic of uh, wonder for children. I've got plenty more where these came from, by the way. Years ago, back when I was a teacher, I was teaching my class about light. Infrared on the left of the spectrum Through to ultraviolet on the right I showed them the primary colours And drew circles of blue, green and red I explained that each shade had its own frequency And the pupils wrote down what I said While the class settled down to their schoolwork one curious boy raised his hand He looked troubled with eyes open wide So I asked, is there something you don't understand? Does that mean that there are no more colours? Does that mean that I've seen everyone? I'd hoped one day to find shades to just blow my mind But I'll never have that kind of fun if there really aren't any more colours And there'll never be new ones to see All this time it would seem it was pointless to dream And the world seems less colourful to me Well I just didn't know what to tell him As he stared at me expectantly did he know that I felt just the same way as him the day my science teacher told me? It's not true that there are no more colours it's not true that you've seen every shade All the reds and the greens and the vast in-betweens Can be blended in endless new ways There's an infinite number of colours That can shock and delight and surprise You can have any shade when you know how it's made And it's only a trick of the eyes Thank you very much. My name's Jay Foreman. Enjoy the rest of the show. Bye-bye. Jay Foreman, everybody. So, right, our next performer is doing a show called American Road Show uh, that's uh, on at Just the Tonic at the Caves at 11.20 every day. He is uh, doing a conversation with me at 3.15 at the Royal Oak on the 21st of August, so that's a free show, so come along to that if you like what he's doing and you want to hear me talking to him about his life. And put your hands together, everybody, for Tama Kachan! Thanks, Dave. Hi, guys. Uh, so you guys heard about uh, Robin Williams killing himself, right? Uh, that freaked me out. Uh, so I, I'm writing about that. Uh, so I didn't get much sleep, so forgive me, I'm not performing this, I'm more reading it, because I wrote it last night. If Dreamcatchers worked, I'd get better sleep, I wish they did. Uh, 
so part of this, because I moved from Egypt to America when I was like eight years old, I immigrated. And uh, do you guys remember Mork for Mork? Yeah. yeah. So that was a really important show to me. And also there was one other film that Robin Williams did called Moscow on the Hudson. And uh, those two things are really important to me. And that's, that's what I wrote about. So um, here it is. Uh, moving from Egypt to America, from the third world to the first world, was a lot like moving to another planet. So it's no surprise that my first hero was an alien who seemed to be from a kinder, gentler place. After our first few difficult years in the US, I uh, discovered a show called Mork and Mindy. Robin Williams was Mork for Mork, an alien from a foreign planet, just like me. And that somehow made me feel less alone. The only other thing I had ever watched was, as much as a boy, was a film called The Black Stallion. And when my mom asked me why I kept watching that film so much, I said it was because the horse was a hero and for once in an American film, the hero was Arabian. <laughs> Later in life, I heard that that short conversation had made my mom cry. Uh, but Mork for Mork was bigger than the Black Stallion to me. He was an alien on Earth who made me feel better for being an alien in America. He constantly made silly mistakes, which made me feel okay about the fact that I did too. My accent made me an outcast. No one wanted to sit next to the kid who, on the very first day of school, unintentionally, but very loudly, went up to the man behind the cafeteria, behind the counter at the cafeteria and said, I'd like a piece of chocolate cock, please. <laughs> I cringe when I now recall that the man I asked for that piece of cake was black. <laughs> but I also smile remember, when I remember that he laughed um, so hard that he had to cup his hands over his mouth and ran away from his post in hysterics. His laugh pleased me a lot. He told me he never laughed that hard at work um, before he put his hand on my shoulder and gave me, a, gave me a big piece of chocolate cake. I still feel the touch of his hand on my shoulder and the warmth of that genuine smile on his face. I needed that. I needed it the way a dehydrated athlete needed water. This moment made me feel special. It made me feel like I was funny, something I knew not everyone was. Until then, I'd felt like a caterpillar in a school full of butterflies. This moment was my cocoon. His laughter softened my embarrassment. His laughter made me laugh at me and taught me that it was okay to laugh at my mistakes because sometimes those mistakes create moments of joy. So again, I related to Mork for Mork because mis his mistakes brought me moments of joy. Robin Williams also made a film called Moscow on the Hudson, an amazing film about being an immigrant, an important film, I thought, because sometimes in America, I felt that people were mean to immigrants. Um, and I feel that, that they didn't empathize with how difficult it was to, have, to move to a new country. We were aliens after all, not human. I remember mo watching Moscow on the Hudson uh, in our first apartment in America, an apartment I remember well. It had a big kitchen window and a flower box full of mint leaves overlooking Sunset Boulevard. To this day, every time I smell mint, I see 70s Hollywood in my mind's eye. One early morning, that street was especially loud and filled with what looked like these giant colorful ants. But when my eyes adjusted to the morning light, those colorful ants transformed into tiny people running in the LA Marathon. I'd never seen a marathon before. Egypt had no room for such an event in its overpopulated streets. As I watched, my, my brain began to digest this new concept, and I began to envy the people running below. I envied how strangers on the sidelines would help and cheer people on and hand them water and give them words of encouragement. They ran mile after mile towards their exhausting goals. And I thought, why couldn't people be that kind of immigrants? We were chasing an exhausting goal, too, but no one offered support from, from my sidelines. My immigration marathon was filled with people yelling mean things like, learn to speak English, or uh, 
Go back to where you came from. I hadn't become fully American yet, and people reminded me of that daily. Uh, I watched Moscow on the Hudson that same night that I experienced the LA Marathon, and that's when I began to grow very fond of Robin Williams. I was very young, but I had already noticed a pattern in his characters. He played, uh, the characters in his pro that he played in his prolific career all had the eyes of an outsider. Every single one had the facial expression of someone who wanted to fit in with others. So I didn't just like Mork for Mork anymore. I loved Robin Williams. Robin Williams did a lot of things for me that I wish my own father knew how to do. He comforted me and he made me feel less alone. I imagine what it would be like to have him as my father when my dad wasn't around. See, my dad was abused and that led to me being abused. I don't blame my dad for this anymore. I understand the dynamics of abuse now. I understand that the person who abused my dad was a vampire and that that vampire had bit my dad, turning him into a vampire. And as hard as my dad tried not to, my dad ended up biting me. And now I have to work really hard to not be a vampire. It's why I've stayed single my whole life. I'm afraid of me. I'm afraid that the house my soul lives in is haunted, so I'm too afraid to let anyone move in. I'm afraid of having a kid and treating him the way my dad treated me. My dad died 12 years ago, but sometimes in the morning when I'm brushing my teeth or washing my face, I'll make an identical express expression to one he would have made. My face will become his face, but just for a brief moment, and I'll quickly look away or I'll throw water on my face as if to wash it off, needing to bring the expression uh, to one that looks like me again. Sometimes I'll even say the words, you're not a vampire, to the scared face in the mirror, out loud. So Robin Williams was medicine for my fears because he was the opposite of vampire. Where vampires suck the life out of people, he would blow joy and life back in, like someone performing an emotional version of CPR. Now that I have grown up to become a comedian, he's left me with one final important life lesson in the tragic take taking of his own life. If you choose the noble profession that this man did, if you choose to blow life and joy into people, you must always remember to stop before you run out of breath. Thanks. Tamak Katan, everybody. Uh, he's up here, and he's only doing this show, actually, I think. Uh, so uh, his name is Matt Miller! Hello! Hello! How are you all? Good. Good. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a ghost story. Kind of like a... Ooh. Yeah, it's not really that kind of ghost story. It starts in 2010, right? And in South Africa, the World Cup is already well underway. It's been a long, hot month of June, and England have struggled through their group stage and are now up against a tricky second-round second tie against hot-tip favourites Germany. Right? We all remember the situation. Sorry, before we carry on, can I just ask, has anyone ever, like, on a night out, um, ever sort of, you know, like... Um, kept someone's underwear as a souvenir of events that went on. <laughs> no. Okay, so England are well underway, right? It's going well. Um, it's, it's going all right, it's going all right. They've gone 2-0 down, but they pulled it back to 2-1. And then just before half-time, Frank Lampard does this lob thing which goes like over the keeper and it hits the underside of the bar and comes down like the width of this stage behind the line. People are cheering and it's disallowed in like this massively 
reminiscent sort of throwback to the events of 1966 when it happened the other way around. If you're German, justice. If you're England, tragic. England go on to lose 4-1, get knocked out of the World Cup. I'm watching this game in Adam's living room, uh, bedroom, sorry. We're sat in his bedroom in the afternoon, shaking off mild hangovers. We watch the game, England get defeated. We don't say all that much to each other. And at the end of the game, I leave and I walk for the bus to go back home, trying not to think it too much. A month before this, a month before this, I'm having my 18th birthday party in my house in Brighton, which is, is anyone from Newcastle? No. Okay, so Brighton is like uh, out in the suburbs to the west of Newcastle. It's described as, as Britain's floral small town, which is accurate because it's, it's too big to be a village, but there's fuck all there. So it's a small town and it's got some flowers in it. Um, I, I grew up in this village and I was a pretty indoorsy kid, you know what I mean? So I didn't have like a group of mates in school. I wasn't like a lad in school. I had little pockets of friends. I, I, I did theater and, and I had, no, I know. Um, so I was in various theater groups and I had little pockets of friends. And so I was worried about this 18th birthday party because I just had all these little pockets of friends and they all got together and it was amazing and it was fantastic because it threw all of these groups of friends together. It went on for like 12 hours from three till three. It was incredible. It was a right success. And Adam was there. And Adam, um, Ad Adam was, uh, was sort of slightly taller than me, quite gangly, big teeth, big sort of like quagmire grin. Um, he was an insomniac. Um, I, I met him in town once and he claimed to have already met me four times in the last 10 minutes once in two different places. He was a little bit on the edge. Um, but he was, he was lovable. He was, he, was, he was a bit of a cunt, but he was absolutely lovable. And, and I, I, I fancied him quite a bit. And I was just starting to come to the terms, to come to terms with my own bisexuality. Um, and then in the morning after my 18th birthday party, I wake up in my attic bedroom amongst like a sea of friends. It's like an apocalypse. <laughs> like just tangled limbs everywhere and the, the lights creeping up through the Velux and I'm lying next to Adam. And I sort of shuffle a bit closer. And he sort of shuffles a bit closer back the other way. And I sort of reach out and my reaching fingers find his waistband and his find mine. And we both cop a little feel. And we're both pressing our faces firmly into the carpet but I can like feel his smile on his skin. It's this beautiful moment, and it's a fucking victory in like a sea of recent defeats. It doesn't go on for long, nothing much happens because the room's full of people, and we do a little meerkat look around and people are waking up. So that's about as far as it goes, and nothing's really said. It's fine, that's that. Until about a month later, when I'm in my bedroom again, and it's sometime just after midnight, and I'm, I'm settling in, I'm done for the night, and I get a call off Adam just after midnight. And he goes, Matty, 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 Matty. That's how he talked. <laughs> and, uh, and he says, come out to town. I go, no, 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 I'm in for the night. He goes, no, 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 no. Come, out to, come out to town. Come, in, come out to town. You'll never guess where I am. And I say, where? He goes, where I am is a place where we can do what we wanted to do 
right? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Where we can do that thing that we can't do anywhere else? What can we do there that we can't do anywhere else? And I go, nothing. There's a, you're in a gay bar, right? Yeah, 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 I'm in, the, I'm in the gay bit, I'm in the gay bit. What can we do here that we can't do anywhere else? I say, nothing. There's nothing we can't do there that we can't do anywhere else. He goes, no, come on, Matty, Matty, Matty. What can we do here that we can't do anywhere else that we sort of nearly did after your 18th birthday? And I'm, at the minute, I'm, I'm really not up for this, but because I've had an indoorsy childhood, there's this voice in my brain, whenever any sort of suggestion to do anything other than stay in the house is made, like, go on, do it. But I mean, I'm out in the sticks, so it's like past the last bus anyway. So I'm sort of going, I'm not saying yes, I'm not saying no, I'm just on the phone going, I don't know. And he, and, and, and he says, well, I'll bring you a taxi. So he brings me a taxi, so it's, it's happening. Um, so I sneak out the house and I'm feeling like this is what people do. Do you know what I mean? I'm doing a thing. I'm actually doing a thing. Um, and I feel like I build up this armour of like, yeah, I'm daring. And I get in the taxi and he starts driving me along the river tying into town. And uh, he says, where are you going, mate? And I go, Pink Triangle. And he goes, <laughs> Pink Triangle. No one's called it that since the 80s. You want to go to the gay bit? I go, yeah. <laughs> First layer of armour thoroughly chipped. <laughs> um, and I get there, and I get to this bar called Easy Street in Newcastle in the gay bit that sort of stinks of, like, vinyl and desperation. And Adam meets me at the bar with a pint, and he, and he gives me a pint, and he says, There you are, Matty. Matty. Oh, give us a hug, Matty. Uh, my grin. And, and we kiss for a bit, and, and we're getting off for a bit. And then, to be honest, I don't really remember what happens for much of the rest of the night. I assume we kiss for a bit, we dance for a bit. And at some point, the decision is made to walk back to his, which is balmy, because he, I can't, I'll be honest with you, I can't even remember where he fucking lives, but it's miles away. It's right out sort of eastern suburbs of town, and we're walking like at three, four in the morning through all these dark, like, street-lit side streets. And he's, like, he's playing big man. He's got this idea that he can, like, take people on. He's about, he's thinner than me. Right? Picture, and he's, he's walking through going, yeah, checking, checking the corners and that. I don't really remember much of the walk. What I do remember is this, like, ridiculously drunk girl that we stumble across who just sort of, like, appears out of a side street. She walks like this, she comes up to us, and she's got, like, she's like a brunette Courtney Love after a five-day binge. She's got, like, hair coming down like this. And she goes, you all right, lads? How are you getting on? Do you both want to take us back and fuck us? which Adam's very much up for. <laughs> um, this girl reeks, like she's got vodka right in my face. And, and most of my brain is going, no, no, this is a bad thing to do. This is certainly a bad thing to do. But another bit of my brain is going, no, maybe this is just what people do. Maybe this... <laughs> and then there's also a bit of my brain that would pretty much settle for any experience with Adam that, uh, that goes, whether it's either side of this drunken nothing or... Just the two of us, which is bad, but I thought it, so it exists. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of stood there in this sort of indecision, and she's getting off with Adam, and he pushes her up against this brick wall and starts fingering her. Um, and they're, like, breathing aggression into each other's faces. They've both got this really, like, desperate, aggressive need thing going on. And he sort of growls, can I keep your knickers as a souvenir? Which he does. <laughs> And as far as I'm aware, still has them in his bedroom. Whips off her knickers. And this carries on for a bit longer. And eventually, he obviously notices that I'm not so much up for this random drunken threesome. And says, Matty, what do you want to do? And he puts the ball in my court. And I say, I just want to go home with you. 
So he says, right. And he goes to this girl, sorry, love, sorry, it's not going to happen. Me and this lad, we're together. <laughs> Unbelievable in the circumstances, isn't it? <laughs> but it works, she buys it. I'm going to take him home and I'm going to destroy him. <laughs> I remember this verb, destroy, because it made my stomach, it felt like being kicked. But it also felt like what I told myself I wanted. So, like, I was up for that. So we walk back to his. We leave this girl who, um, and, and then he's doing this whole thing again of like darting through the side streets and he's like jumping at shadows and cars are driving past and he's, and he's saying, we need to watch we're back. So I think she'd shouted something like, I'm going to get my boyfriend on yous, which again makes little sense, but there was like a definite uh, incentive to not be seen. And we get back to his and the sun is literally fucking rising. And I say, so what are we going to do when we get back to yours? And he goes, what do you mean? I go, what, what, we, what are we going to do? He goes, nothing. I go, what? Matty, nothing can happen in my house. Things can happen where they're supposed to happen, but not in my house. Because, obviously, he's a Catholic. Um, <laughs> he goes, if my dad found out, he'd kill us both. And I knew then I should have turned around and left. I should have walked all the way back home if I needed to, but I didn't. And instead, in my head, I started thinking... Oh, maybe we should have just fucked the drunk girl. And I said to him, maybe we should have just fucked the drunk girl. And he goes, yeah, you see, Matty, you've got to take these opportunities when they arise. And I believed myself. I believed that's what I should have done. And we got back to his, and we fell asleep. Me on the floor and him in his bed. And we woke up in the afternoon, mildly hungover. And we turned on the telly, and we watched England get knocked out of the 2010 World Cup. 4-1 by Germany. We didn't really say much to each other. And after the game, I left and walked to the bus stop to go back home, trying not to think about too much. Thank you. Matt Miller, everybody. Okay, so now our next performer, she's doing a show up here from the 18th to the 25th uh, 20, that doesn't make sense. 18th to the 22nd. 18th to the 22nd uh, of August called See You Next Thursday, which is going to have four brilliant comedians and one um, uh, questionable open slot. Uh, and uh, that's at uh, 3.15 every day those days. Uh, she's also uh, the version of the female version of me. Uh, not that we're anything like each other, really, but when I have days off, she'll be hosting this show. So put your hands together for Charlie Harrison! Not the female version of Dave. I'm better than him. Uh, thanks, Dave. Cheers. Uh, how are you doing? All right? Good fringe so far? You know, I like it. I've been here a day. I've started thinking differently like seeing things differently. I walked past a sign on the way here outside a beauty salon and it said, teen facial, 10 pounds. <laughs> well, seems cheap. I've been watching a lot of porn. Uh, <laughs> you can always tell I love Solux. You can tell the people that watch a lot of porn in the room. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's difficult uh, when you watch a lot. I don't know how you find watching porn, right? But, um, and also, it's quite weird talking about porn, because I think as a girl, people think you're trying to be, like, edgy or hot or something. But neither of those things. I'm just very alone. 
Um, but yeah, I find it hard because you, you go through all the filth, don't you? And then you find, finally, you, like, if you're a nice, well brought up girl like me, you know, you finally find a video that, you know, you like, like a romantic, a man making love to a woman, you know, from behind. <laughs> not a fan, not a fan of the, what, you're not a fan of the term making love, is that? Yeah. Is that what it is? Okay, yeah, yeah. Man, make, how about a man making love to a woman from behind while hitting her? Is that, that bit more, more your thing? Yeah, good, good. All right, we know where we are with you, very good. Um, and you find that video, they find that video that you like, and then you're sort of barraged by the side bit, aren't you? The brutal bit, the side. It's like advertising really brutal stuff, right? And you, you know, I can't even say, like, out in this room, because you'll seem like very nice people, and it will change the atmosphere. If I say, like, what I've seen people... I've done it before in rooms, and people are like, stop talking about rape, Charlie. And I'm like, well, stop showing me videos of people being raped. And I will. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, you see that side bit. So I'm there, I'm, I've got my nice romantic blowjob video, or whatever, and then the side bit's there, and that's like a car crash. You have to watch it, even though you don't want to. And then I start worrying... Start worrying about people, young people today, and, and how boys must see women in our society today. And then I come. <laughs> <laughs> Incredibly problematic. <laughs> yeah. So I've started seeing someone new. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if anyone else gets this, like when you start seeing someone. I can't tell whether he's like really into me. Or just American? <laughs> How do I know? Really hard to tell. Um, but Americans are nice. Americans, I'll give it to them. They're very encouraging. Like, you talk to American people about stand-up, and they're like, cool, I love comedy. I'm a Jew. <laughs> you, you, say to a, you say to a British person that you do comedy, so I do stand-up, and, well, they treat you like a Burns victim. <laughs> they do. They do. Do you do stand-up? No, they, they, they basically, they go, um, that's very brave, especially as a woman. <laughs> you know, I don't know, like, do people, what, what do we think? Do we think stand-up's brave? Who, no, you do, you think it's brave. Do you, some people think, I don't think it's brave, right? I think, like, it's delusional and egotistical for me to stand here, right? For me to stand here and expect you, for example, to listen to me and my experiences with porn. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> fucked up. Like, you know, like, I'm no, I'm no better. Why should you listen to me? I'm no better than you guys. You know, I'm a bit better than you. Um, <laughs> a little bit better than you. No, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not better than the vast majority of people. I don't think it's brave. Have we got any examples of bravery? Because I'm thinking about bravery quite a lot recently. But, Bravery is, you know, I, I text my mum about bravery and she, this is so typical of my mum, I was trying to work out what brave actually means. And she said, this is uh, being honest so long as love is the motive. Oh, <laughs> no, that's so my mum, right? That's so like, and, and I think what she's trying to, that's basically a reference to the fact that she like left the family home and became a lesbian and left the left us, <laughs> but she's used different terms there. Um, but <laughs> it's true, like, I do actually think what she did was quite brave, like, she, she went against social norms, which is quite brave. Bravery is cunnilingus at the end of Glastonbury. Got a lot of respect for that, you know, those guys. They did take it in turns, yeah, but, yeah. Anyone been to the Rice Lip Lido Woodland Festival? No. <laughs> 
No. Um, it's good. It's good, the Rice Blood of Woodland Festival. You should check it out. Um, there's lots of stuff there. There's archery. There's ferret racing. Um, there's the construction of dream catchers, which is appropriate because if you did want to capture and then restrict a dream, Rice Lip would be a great place to choose. Any Quakers in the audience? Any Quakers in? Any Quakers in the house? You're what? Oh, you're a former Quaker, sir. Do you? Okay, cool. So you... The meetings. Oh, okay. So the, the, I, I the youth organisation of Quakers. Yeah. And you sit in silence. And when you worship as a Quaker, right? I know this because I went to a Quaker school. And uh, every Wednesday at Quaker school, right, you sit in 15 minutes in silence. That's how Quakers worship. And if anyone feels the power of God in them, they stand up and they say something. And so inevitably, every Wednesday, um, the girl with mental health problems would stand up and say something. And what was really, it was really sad, right? Because what happened was when that girl left that school, she had no platform anymore. Um, so now she comes to Sellers in Edinburgh. And uh, <laughs> those are people instead. Thanks. Um, what did any, I'm just going to say Quakers now. And like, what did you think when I said Quakers? Any kind of porridge. porridge. You thought porridge, didn't you? Do you know why you thought of porridge? you're narrow-minded <laughs> right there's no connection okay right this is you know there's been a lot of kind of talk about Quakers and it's annoying me right because there's no connection between the cultivation of oats and the Quakers as a religious group there's no connection there at all like some clever marketing people thought this looks likely this looks like we'll put the face of a trustworthy Quaker on our brand but there's no connection at all at all it's a bit like Noel Edmonds being the face of child porn. There's no connection. There's no connection there. But it feels like there should be. <laughs> I, <laughs> that's the sort of the hissing sound, an awkward hissing sound is the sort of atmosphere I like to leave a gig on. So thank you very much. I've been Charlie Harrison. You've been lovely. Thank you. Charlie Harrison, everybody. We have our last slice of tragedy for you. She is doing uh, a show called Julie Mullen's Word Caf uh, from the 11th to the 16th. She'll be on, uh, or cafe maybe, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, there we go, cafe. Uh, from the 11th to the 16th is, is when she'll be there, but it's, it's going on all, all festival. That's at 2.05 at the Pleasant's Courtyard. Put your hands together for Mel Jones! <laughs> I love that. Julie Mullen's word, chaff. <laughs> Marvellous. Tragedy all of its own. Um, well, tragedy does come in, in many different forms. I think there's a hierarchy of tragedy. Uh, and I like the little ones. You know, the, the little sort of mischances, mistimings, misdemeanours, miscommunications that happen as we go along in life, uh, also known as my life. Uh, <laughs> so I thought I'd start off with a few of those. A lot of you have travelled and you'll be travelling back tonight and things may happen on that journey. And I wanted to share with you a mini tragedy of my own. This is called Courtship. <laughs> Returning late from Essex, I got down to the train and realised I really should have gone before I came. <laughs> Still, tube rolled in, and on I got, in the hope I'd get home fast, but another 15 minutes in I knew I wouldn't last. My tonsils started floating. 
And I scrutinized the seating, you know, wondering if it could stand a little bit of seeping. <laughs> I clamped my knees together, but my bladder was not happy, and I shot a fairly envious glance at a baby in a nappy. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't know the stations, but I'd heard that Newbury Park had a ladies on the platform, so swiftly disembarked the shock of finding no such thing brought home some pressing facts so I limped along the tarmac to a metal seat with slats <laughs> and <laughs> sat there in the shadows till no one was about and then rearranged my lower half and let the torrent out. <laughs> Jesus on a bicycle, it was a powerful pee. I mean, I had to lift my legs up as it spread out copiously. <laughs> and uh, just then, the last packed tube rolled in, warm and brightly lit, rather like my pool of pee. Now steaming quite a bit. <laughs> and my options at this moment seem crystal clear to me. Terminal embarrassment or getting home at three. So I quickly hiked me knickers, got on board and shut my eyes as I felt residual trickling go down my inner thighs. <laughs> and my eyes stayed shut till Bethnal Green when I got off really quick, but not before some cunt could shout, at least you didn't shit! <laughs> Tragedy number one. <laughs> but uh, in, the, in the field of spoken word and poetry and all that kind of thing, but, you know, the word smithery is abundant. And uh, perhaps it's unsurprising that in my working life I've dealt a lot with words and mostly with people's CVs, you know, recruitment, people give you their shit CV, frankly, and you give it back to them. And after a while you go a little bit mad. Um, and one of the ways in which you can, you can mitigate against your insanity is to start to take the mild piss uh, and cut and paste the more um, pleasing vignettes uh, uh, and put them in a little document of your own. So over the years, that's what I have done. Uh, and I've used it, and I've used it for good. I have used it for good to try and mitigate future tragedy. I've said, look, this is why you don't just use the spell check. This is why you proofread. You get someone else to proofread. But secretly, I'm very glad when they don't because this is the result. I promise you everything I'm about to read to you was actually in a real-life CV what I got. Dear Miss Jones, I am very attracted to your opening. <laughs> I have the ability to work a variety of shits. <laughs> including early, late weekend and split shits. <laughs> I have good written English and my oral is excellent. <laughs> Qualifications, English and maths. <laughs> I put everything into my walk. <laughs> Attendance and punctuality impeachable. <laughs> I'm highly computerly literate. I rise to the challenge and work well as a member. <laughs> I work for one year as a pastry. I always set myself up as a target and I press myself until I hit it. 
I also took part in the Duke of Edinburgh. <laughs> I can make vegans free from desserts. <laughs> I executed different kitchen labourers. <laughs> I'm eager to put my foot in your project. <laughs> I've no problem getting on different types of customers. <laughs> I was a chef at a pub until my employer died. <laughs> I was placed for visitors to come in. <laughs> I patted down some male customers and some bags. <laughs> I've been ill since 2010, but now I'm on the men. <laughs> I like to keep fit, and several times a week you will find me in gym. <laughs> in my spare time, I work for the glory of God Almighty. Also, needlework. <laughs> I'm very good at small children. <laughs> I use multiple ways to fulfil customer needs from behind <laughs> and over the desk. In my spare time, I sit on a board in Hackney. <laughs> my, <laughs> my duties included polishing the jeweller. I put 11% into everything I do. <laughs> you got the fucking job, mate. <laughs> I have listed my most popular positions. <laughs> if you need any more details, please <coughs> hesitate to contact me. <laughs> closely allied, you know, um, a little vignette is, is as a result of a conversation. I picked up the phone, I had the conversation, I put the phone down, I wrote out the conversation. Here it is. This is why civil servants earn their call. It's called customer service. Good morning. Mel speaking. How may I help you? I want a job, love. Okay, what kind of work are you looking for? Full time. Uh, yes, but what do you want to do? Shifts. Okay, okay, and when you're on a shift, what kind of work are you doing? Whatever I'm told, I'm a very good worker. I'm, I'm sure, but what I'm trying to get at is what it is you actually do. Oh, I can turn my hand to most things. Right, but what do you tend to turn your hand to most of the time? Well, I'm unemployed at the moment. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to hear that, but what would you like to do? Like I say, get a job. Which job? What have you got? Okay. To help you, I need to know a little bit about the jobs you've done before. What was your last job? I had two jobs. And what were they? They were all right, as it goes. <laughs> but I got sacked. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, but what were you sacked from? Both of them. <laughs> Oh dear, okay. Let, let's look at this another way. Have you got any qualifications? Oh yes, and what are they? I've got an MVQ and a City and Guilds. In what? College. 
<laughs> okay, and you left college and you, you got a job? Yes. And what was your job? I was an assistant. And who were you assisting? The manager. <laughs> Managing what? Me. <laughs> well, when you were doing what? Working? Are you thick or something? <laughs> you, do, do you know, I, I really don't know because I still have absolutely no idea what it is you do. Oh, I'm sorry, love, didn't I say? Communications. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, this is a tragedy from my own life. This is why I don't drink no more. And it's called Hangover. It's the morning after the night before. It, it tastes as if my tongue spent the best part of last night up at Badger's Bar. A herd of thundering buffalo is charging through my head and I can't remember where I've been or what I did or said, my eyes don't want to open because they're crusty and sore and filmy. They'd, they'd only be a token fight if someone tried to kill me. And something smells a bit like fish and there's pizza on the floor and... Hang on just a second. That isn't my door. <laughs> and then a toilet flushes. <laughs> from somewhere quite nearby and memories start bubbling up. Oh me, oh fucking my. <laughs> and I think I'm east of London and I need to get home soon before that bloke, wanna say Dave, <laughs> comes back into the room but I'm slow and I don't make it and in wanders my lay, which is when I realized last night I was not only drunk, but gay. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Mel, <laughs> says the ravishing beauty, apparently named Belinda, as she traces round my wavering smile with a slow, familiar finger. And it's in that tender moment the good Lord grants my wish and I finally piece together what I thought I could smell fish. <laughs> it's not my crowning moment. No one will tell me, Mom, but fuck it all. You only live once and I think she made me come. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, yeah, every fucker in the known universe seems to be on a diet, and there's always, you know, Trini and Susanna and Gokwan and all that shit, and it uh, made me think about the tragedy of body shaming and body image, and does every girl need a gok? <laughs> so as I look at myself, without any disguise, you know, no slap on my spots, no coal round my eyes. I thought to myself, liberated or no, your natural assets have some way to go. When I tried to look sexy and puckered my lips, I looked like a camel that suffered from fits. <laughs> Depression ensued and the weight piled on and it seemed that my chance for perfection was gone, but then I came in for a wonderful shock. I switched on the telly and there was a gawk primping and preening, and that was just him, and he made all the fat girls look like they were slim. He gathered their breasts into glorious mounds, slapped on the makeup, sucked in the pounds, and suddenly there in a heavenly light stood a woman like me. She looked all right. So I nipped on the net, 
for some foundation clothing, guaranteed to reduce belly fat and self-loathing. <laughs> and when it arrived, I was powerfully moved by the thought I'd be getting goptastically smoothed. And although in a trice, I was magically sheathed and two sizes smaller. I just couldn't breathe. <laughs> it felt like my liver and stomach had gone on an ill-advised journey to visit my bum. <laughs> As my pancreas merged with my bladder and colon, I knew that I'd have to roll off what I rolled on. What use is the thrill of an hourglass you if you can't feel your fingers or go for a poo? <laughs> so, back to a life in the natural state. The girl without gawk must accept a bleak fate. Still on the whole, I prefer to look knackered and coloured and shaded and pinned back and lacquered. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Jones, everybody! Okay, so now, at this point in the show, it's the time when I remind you about those, those, uh, those things I mentioned at the beginning. The tragic scent. We will have some dramatic music over me in a minute and I'll sound even more impressed. There we go. Uh, well, there's some, uh, right, so it's a free show to get in, but it's, if you could donate where you, when you go out, that would be brilliant. Because it costs quite a lot of money to come up to the Edinburgh Festival. It costs £400 to get your little, tiny little thing in the, in the big fringe brochure. It costs money for accommodation. It costs money for travel. Money, money, money. It costs money for leaflets. And I lost my job this year, so I shouldn't even be here. So basically, that's one of the reasons that you could give some money back to Stand Up Tragedy. Another good reason to give money back to Stand Up Tragedy is, you know, supporting the arts, uh, which is a nice thing to do. The Tories aren't going to do it, so I guess we'll have to get on with helping each other out. So that's one, another thing I'd like to say. But as I said, £10, you get a cent of tragedy. A couple of quid, you get a tragic snaps. Tell your friends about the show as well. That's a great thing to do. Helps us out. Helps people to know that the tragedy is happening. Uh, you can find us at Stand Up For Tragedy on Twitter. You can like us or friend us on Facebook. And now, everybody, the tragedy is over. This podcast was put together by me with the sound recorded by the excellent Stephen Harvey. And the music was by Samuel Wilkinson and George Brofton.